There were a couple of quotes I pulled that kind of popped out to me. (laughs) One was the glasses of our intentions. I really like that, that Marge had said. Marge. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There was like a lot of poetic, uh, I know for you, you and me, Eileen, we're more of the written word poetry and Marge had a couple. So the other one was I yield to authority. So if an authority figure told me I needed to correct my dog, I corrected my dog. That was another one that stuck out. That's one of my favorite things that Marge says, because nobody, hardly anybody admits that. We all want to believe that if we were in the Stanford prison experiment, you know, we would have been the ones that no, not this one or or no, the other, the Milgram. Anyway. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I, yeah, I, I, struggle with that a lot too with a lot of the discord happening online around methods and dog training too because people are like there was one lady or maybe it was a lady there's one account that was like if you hurt your dog in any way or use corrections in any way you better be apologizing I was like to whom like (laughs) (laughs) to your dog like anyone that used corrections or was forceful with their dog that's making a shift is doing that every day with their dog so it's so unfair Mm -hmm. to make people feel worse when they are trying to change and then I like you know you know Eileen where we live corrections and and alpha and dominance is a huge thing so I, and a lot, and there's some people that will do it and they want to, and they like it and they have no interest in changing, but I see a, a different group of people, a very large group of people that didn't know any different yeah. or weren't yeah. sure like that information. Yes. Then, yeah. And even with me and my, my miniature schnauzer, I was, I was like, I got to be in charge and I got to show them I'm the boss. And I still have to be careful because I will lose my patience with my dogs even to this day. And I will have big feelings about it. And I have to be careful, like, oh, can I fix that? Or how do I adjust that next time? And trying to get that information as information on symptoms, not them trying to defy me or (laughs) get one on me. It's It's a huge mental shift that does not happen overnight at all. Yeah. I mean, I remember days with one of my crossover dogs that after I you know I'm a crossover trainer so one of the crossover dogs things that I did to him once I learned better I would literally put my head on my pillow and cry for the things Mm. that I did to him after I learned but there comes a point where we have to forgive ourselves and move on and you know when you know better you do better Right. But I can't go back and undo what I did when I didn't know better. And I think especially in our profession, you know, whoever sounds like they know what they're talking about and are very confident to somebody who has little or no information on the topic, Mm -hmm. they're going to buy into that. Yes. I just interviewed a, another person for the podcast who talked about that because they started with more, you know, shock, e-collar or, and uh, prong and choke. And then she's like, they were just had really good marketing and they looked like they were successful and they knew what they were doing. So, sure. we did it. and now they've made the transition, but yeah, I want to write more about religion and dog training too. And I have a few mm. essays because that parallel and something I've been thinking about a lot because in my family, I'm one of eight. I come from trauma, severely mm-hmm. um, fundamentalist, very controlling, abusive cult. And my mom has been on this journey of trying to, um, you know, change how she's thinking and all this. And some of my siblings seem really cut out for her pound of flesh of, mm. and it's like, well, she can't keep making, she can't keep cutting herself and making herself bleed to fix the past, you know, either. And I think we also have to think about that with clients that come to us and they're like, I've done this, or I'm I'm trying to do different. Like, I'm not going to punish them. I want to talk more about like those pound of fleshes and and, like how people talk about it online. Like even accounts that are providing good information. They're like, I'm sorry. I don't understand how anyone could look at this body language and think this is okay. I'm like, you didn't know before you learned either. What are you doing? You know, the curse of knowledge, right? Once we know it, we can't unlearn it, and it's hard to imagine our learner's state of mind. It's it's really hard to do. But yeah, I think first and foremost, we have to be inviting and welcoming and accepting of our human learners and meet them where they're at. Yes. Yep. Yep. Make space for it. Even if you don't agree with what they've done or or what they're doing, how do we gently guide them instead of like 
bopping him in the face over it. It's mm-hmm. I get heated about these things. I'm like, oh. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I get it. Same, we all do. It's yeah. the same thing. And when people call for us to be as nice to humans and have the same, you know, planning and shaping of behavior with humans as we do with dogs, it's, you know, it's, it seems silly that people have to say that, but yes. Yes. And I do think there's room to discuss on people that are being rude and awful and mean off the bat. They don't deserve kindness or respect, you know, but I do think there are different groups of people to deal with differently. If someone is is trying or doesn't know better that I think that should be dealt with differently than someone who's like openly hostile and trying to attack, you know, like how we deal with dogs, right? Someone (laughs) trying to bite you. You don't let that happen. But yeah. Or, Or people will confuse how people argue online with how they speak to their clients. And really, you, that can be two different ways. You know, it's like with when you're arguing with peers or people who should be your peers or people you wish you were your peers, you know, any of that, you know, it can be heated, you can argue ideas, you can say this is wrong. And people get all upset because you're not being kind. But that kind of argument is kind, I will argue. But that's not how you talk to a beginner learner. You know, yeah. of course not. Of course yeah. not. When you have a face in front of you, it's very different than when you don't see yeah. that, right? Yeah. So when you're watching, you know, I, I said to a client the other day, I was just kind of watching his, his what was happening on his face. I was like, well, talk to me. What's going on here? How are you feeling? And I couldn't do that if I didn't see his face and I wasn't in the context of being right there with him. And yeah. those are important nuances. We can't have complex conversations, right? In a little Instagram carousel. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Telltale Dog Podcast. I'm your host, certified dog trainer, Elizabeth Silverstein, and I have with me today two folks, Marge Rogers, a certified professional dog trainer and canine behavior consultant. She has thousands of hours teaching owners, dogs, and other canine professionals. And along with Marge, we have Eileen Anderson, who writes about her life with multiple dogs with a focus on describing positive reinforcement-based training to pet owners and beginner trainers. They have co-written the very helpful Puppy Socialization book, and I'm excited to talk to them today. Hi, how are you doing? We're great. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yes, well, thank you. Thanks for being on. And this is round two. And I just wanted to say on record, thank you for trying again. I had a little tech upset. So <laughs> we're trying it again <laughs> and recording it on two methods. So hopefully this one will stick. So I have loved the puppy socialization book. I have been recommending it to all my clients, even if even if people don't hire me and they have a puppy, I'm like, get this book. You know, <laughs> Thank you. Um, so it is a wonderful book. I wanted to kind of start at the beginning with you too. So if I'm reading things right, you have known each other for 10 years. Is that correct? Or I think it was a little bit longer. As a nine. Yes, that sounds about right. Yeah. So coming up on like 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and how did you both meet we were introduced by a friend in common we both used to be on the yahoo um, clicker solutions group and the training levels group sue aylesby's group and we had a we each had a friend um, on there who one day said to i believe it was marge first said you need to talk to eileen you you guys think about things just the same way And she kind of said the same thing to me and Marge sent me an email and she was right. Our friend was right. (laughs) Here we are 15 years later. We grew up together as, as trainers and writers and chose our paths kind of in coordination with each other, almost very much in support of each other. Yes. Through the years, we, you know, we text every day, we'd email, we'd Zoom together. And then when we were working on the book, we'd be in the document together, but we've actually never met in person, (laughs) which some people are surprised to find out, but we really developed a relationship and we learned about positive reinforcement training together and we'd shoot videos. This is what I did. What do you think? And we critique (laughs) each other's videos and it was such a safe place. Like I I didn't want to hear all flowery stuff. I wanted to hear how I could get better. And she'd look at it and tell me this. And 
vice versa. So we were both so passionate about what we were learning. And we wanted, like, I wanted to stand on the rooftops and shout it, like, how can I share this information? And I took a path of becoming a trainer and behavior consultant. And Eileen took a path of informing people through her blog. So we each found our own little way to share our joy for what we've learned. Nicely put, Marge. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's just, there's an eloquency to Marge uh, that I I wish I had. Like, yeah, like I mentioned. Same (laughs) here. Same here. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yep. We vote you the eloquent one. Oh my gosh. Thanks you guys. Oh, shucks. <laughs> so puppy socialization actually isn't your first project together. How did you start collaborating on things? Actually, it was puppy socialization, but not this book. Okay. Yeah. Marge is one of the only people in the world who can say, you ought to write a blog about such and such. And it actually happens. And I don't mean that that I'm excluding other people or that I'm some kind of a snob, but it's like she knows how my mind works and she knows what'll hook me, (laughs) a wicked little talent she has. (laughs) But when she got her puppy Zip, a Portuguese water dog, she started making some videos to share. And when I saw the first video, I said, I have to write a blog post about this. And we ended up doing that either five or six times. It's called Lessons for My Puppy, and it's available free through our websites. But that's how we started. It's just like she wrote, she made this great video, and I wanted to tell the world how it was great, you know, what she was doing in there that was so fabulous. And that's how it started. So that is what I like to think of the spark of passion, right? So I'm sure people come to you all the time, Eileen, and they're like, please write this idea, this book, whatever. And For writers, it's like, well, why don't you do it? Like, I have so many ideas, but it seems like you two kind of share a brain in a way that if Marge is excited about something, Eileen is also excited about it, which is rare. That's very rare. So but yes. that's, that's a very cool partnership to have. Oh, absolutely. And she helps me out. You know, I'll be getting a certain question repeatedly from clients or, um, you know, uh, questions from callers and I'll say, you know what we need? There's not good information out there on X, Y, or Z. And and she'll uh, hop hop all over that and then save me a little extra work in the meantime. <laughs> yeah, so lots of life in that too. So how did you get this book? So out of that, so that was, when did that start when you wrote uh, or put together lessons from my puppy? Was that? That, was- that has to be, well, Zip is eight. Uh, he'll be nine in June, and he is so probably about eight and a half years ago. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. So it sounds like that was the seeds of the book Puppy Socialization. When did it start to come to fruition? Yes and no. It wasn't. It, there was a long gap there. You know, when you finish your projects, it's like, yeah, we made this nice little book, um, and socialization is actually not the first lesson. It's like number five or something. And even though in number two and three, we're saying, well, really, you should socialize first, but here's something else we're working on. And and on the other hand, some of the stuff March was doing was socialization, but we didn't maybe call it that. Mm-hmm. But um, there, there was a gap there between those two projects. And um, as far as the present book, each of us remembers the other one having the idea for it. <laughs> I, I will tell you forever that I will win this argument. It was not my idea. It was Marge's idea. <laughs> and I will say it was Eileen's idea. But we, I, again, things I hear in phone calls, like people call me, oh, I took my puppy everywhere, like my breeder told me, or I didn't take him anywhere, like the rescue told me, don't let his feet hit the grass until he's had all his shots. And these repeated questions over and over again. So there was a gap in knowledge. And if I looked around at the time, and gosh, we probably started that when I moved up here about five years ago. Mm -hmm. There was a, just a, you know, word was starting to get out to owners, like you have to socialize your puppies, but there wasn't a lot of detail and description about how to do it. And there's also a lot of socialization myths out there. Yeah. You know, you know, throw your puppy in a shopping cart and take him everywhere or, you know, don't take him anywhere. You know, you've heard the ball. 
So we really wanted to get some good information out there for puppy owners. And Eileen was awesome about doing all the research and pulling the latest studies together and then sharing uh, her experiences with her own puppy who wandered into her home. Well, she's not a puppy anymore. No, she's not. My one puppy. I like to, I am really grateful that Marge has the experience to bear. You know, people, um, I'll talk about myself for just a minute. People praise my training and I'm very grateful that that people admire what I do and I try really hard, but what I lack that Marge and you and any professional trainer has is the breadth of working with a lot of dogs. Uh, Marge works with the same number of dogs in a week that I have worked with in my whole life. And that shows, and that means that I have the resource in Marge. So I, she was the one with the big time puppy socialization experience, but man, I sure learned a lot (laughs) from my next dog (laughs) from working with her. (laughs) I I get very torn because I'm like, oh man, what I know now with a puppy, that would be so cool. But then I'm like, oh, a puppy dog. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe it's better to like help other people than, you know, like the fun aunt who comes in with all the candy and plays with the kids and then leaves <laughs> yes yes I do like that I've been called the the treat lady uh Disneyland for dogs uh, <laughs> dog princess <laughs> so I'm like I'll take it I'll take it but that did bring up a, a point I did want to touch on that I I would love for you to expound upon Eileen because you guys you guys were kind of at the same spot on the forum kind of entering into this world and then you took these two very different paths and so Marge went trainer business route, and then you went the writer route. Could you share about why that happened for you? Sure. Um, I was already um, socially uh, hanging out with a lot of trainers, mostly online. And I, to be very frank, uh, I found that I didn't have the temperament for it. Um, I didn't feel like I was resilient enough to to do the things that trainers do because it is a hard job and it can be a heartbreaking job. And the things that you all see or need to help with, or, you know, the very sad cases, I didn't feel like I would be able to do that and do it justice. Um, Also, I just didn't want to travel a lot and go to people's houses. And, you know, there was not a place where I could just become an employee. You know, if that had been an option, if there had been a nice big positive training business here, I might have gone that route. I'm not sure. But I did not feel like I could be an entrepreneur. I didn't feel like I could go to people's houses. I couldn't bear the emotional brunt that trainers have. And I learned about that early enough to realize that I, I just didn't think that would be good a good fit for me. Yeah, and that's fair because it is, as Marge knows, it is a very, very hard job. And I, we get told a lot that we just give treats to puppies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all, I, all I do is play with puppies all day. <laughs> yeah, it is It is remarkable how much the same things come up too. Of like everybody likes to say the same thing to give treats to puppies. Who's walking who on what? <laughs> yeah, I get that one too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and Marge, would you like to share why you went the dog trainer route and the behavior uh, route? I got into behavior because, well, first I got into training because it was novel and I'm a learning junkie, right? And I'm like, this is amazing. And, you know, we uh, used to, our breed before our current breed was Rhodesian Ridgebacks and we adopted through Rhodesian Ridgeback Rescue and we adopted our first one, a dog named Chase. And in the first Two weeks I had him, he locked me out of the house and then knocked my dinner off the stove and ate it. (laughs) He knocked the barrier down in the car and was sitting in the passenger seat and he was crying and scratching at his crate and then got his foot stuck in the door and we had to cut him out with wire cutters. And I'm like, okay, we're going to have to train this dog. (laughs) And I was always a training junkie before then. I used more traditional training. And years prior to that, I had trained English Mastiffs and we'd done some obedience competitions. Yes, with English Mastiffs. So I discovered the clicker and like, 
in no time at all, he had his positions. He was ringing the bell to go outside. I'm like, wow, this is super, super fast. And, you know, I wanted to do competition obedience with him. So I took him to the training club and they're like, oh, the clicker. Yeah, that's great for tricks, but you can't use that for teaching obedience. And I didn't really understand why. Well, if I can teach him to put his toys away with this thing, why can't I teach him other skills with this thing? So it was just my entry into that. And it was such a fantastic learning time. Somebody just referred to it as the wild, wild west. You know, it was back <laughs> when Emily Laurel was getting started and there were, um, you know, she had her videos online and it, I would just teach things to see if I could do it. Like <laughs> if I wanted to teach my dog to dust the coffee table, what would that look like? Could I make a training plan for that? So it really started with tricks and then my second and third Rhodesian Ridgebacks that we adopted through rescue were both worried around people. And the things that I learned to do to them at the training club when they were fearful or barking at something actually made them worse. So that's really when the path diverged into learning more about behavior and understanding that. Uh, so, so I think many of us came to that, came to training and behavior because we had a dog who the things we were doing weren't working. So we wanted to find a better way. Me too. Well, but yeah, thank you for sharing that. And uh, I'm going to shift it back to the book, if that's okay, unless there was anything else that you two wanted to add. Okay. So I did want to point out that it's not, it's it's certainly not an exhaustive book, but it's about as close as you can get <laughs> of a book. It's incredibly in-depth. And I, I do wanted to point out that dog body language chapter and what made you realize that you needed to start with that part of socialization? Because you also mentioned you didn't start with body <laughs> language in your lessons from the puppy series either. Right. So the lessons for my puppy series was really more about life lessons. I wanted to give this new little baby puppy that I had. It wasn't a training book or it wasn't a how-to book. It was things that I wanted him to learn, like I'm fun and learning can be fun. So when we wrote this book, I, like to me, that is one of the pieces that is so under communicated to owners when we talk about socialization. No owner has ever called me and said, I took my puppy to the big box store and I observed him and his tail was low and his ears were back. So I left like that conversation <laughs> has never happened. So I think Word is getting out. I think owners are understanding. They've heard the term socialization. If you ask five owners or even five trainers, you might get five different definitions of what that means. And But I never hear owners talking about body language. And in my experience, they owners are often surprised when they learn about the more subtle signs of fear and anxiety in dogs. So they can recognize the overt signs. Oh my gosh, that dog looks scared. He's cowering. They can't tell you what about his body is telling them that he's scared, but they get the general impression that a cowering dog is scared. But they often aren't trained about the lip lick, the yawns, the other signals. So if they don't have the body language piece, they can't effectively socialize their puppy because they could be sensitizing him instead of helping him form positive associations with the things he's going to encounter. They could be making him more scared. That is a big thing that comes up in reactivity training too. And I'm sure you've seen this Marge where people are like, well, I have to correct him because he's mm. doing something wrong when he's reacting instead of trying to understand, well, maybe he's scared or he needs space or he's uncomfortable, those sorts of things. And I have a neighbor where I was like, well, what if she's like, well, she's not doing the right thing. So I'm going to pull her away. I was like, well, what if I introduce treats instead? Is that okay with you? And she's like, fine. That dog got so excited to see me and my dogs. <laughs> and she's like, oh, you know, so we kind of, I think we get this human mindset stuck and try to apply that to dogs of like, you do a bad thing, a bad thing happens to you instead of a bad thing happens, a positive thing happens afterwards, which is a 
big stress that you you make in the book, which I think is so beautiful. Thank yes, thank you. Um, yeah, that's one of my my big things, and I always narrate for owners. So before I even start working with an owner, we sit down and we talk about body language and you know the science of how dogs learn and how we change how dogs feel about the things that worry them. So in the book, we tell a little story about you know, a child tugging on the back of their dog's, uh, tugging on the back of their um, parent's shirt when there's something in the yard that scares them. And I want owners to recognize like dogs tug on our shirt too. And if we don't listen, that's when they start going, hey, 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 to get our attention. And they get our attention by barking and growling and lunging. So most times it's an expression of worry or fear. And my owners often understand, like if you were worried or afraid of something and I smacked you across the head or punched you in the arm, that's not going to make you less afraid. (laughs) So, you know, it'll probably make you feel worse. So they, yeah, they usually um, understand that that will, once they understand it, it's an expression of fear or worry, then they're usually up forward with um, with trying to change how the dog feels about the things that worry him. And I think a lot of people, when they're trying to think of, well, how do I socialize my puppy? They're kind of thinking of the things like dog parks, dog bars, doggy daycare. <laughs> so I know those things came up too. Um, and it is good to kind of navigate that because it's not, it's not negative associations, uh, associations, right? How would you describe proper puppy so- uh, socialization? One of the, another topic I think doesn't get enough, enough service to owners is helping them choose the right locations. And I like to think of choosing a location in terms of intensity. We want the lowest intensity version of whatever the experience is, whether it be nail trim or handling or going to a new environment or meeting a new person. So we talk in the book and we've even expanded on that in a article on our website, puppysocialization.com. You want the lowest intensity version so the puppy can be successful and form positive associations. When we're talking about puppies in their sensitive period for socialization, most owners are bringing them home around eight weeks of age. And then, so we're talking about eight-ish weeks of age to about 12-ish weeks of age. So the owner hasn't had the puppy that long. Maybe they're not that experienced with puppies. Maybe they're not experienced at reading puppy body language. So I want to start, they don't know if their puppy is bold and sassy yet, or a little bit more of a worrier or a watcher. So rather than, you know, march my puppy into the big box store, I'm going to start in the lowest intensity version of something and things that affect intensity time of day. A coffee shop is more likely to be busy at 7 a.m. than maybe 1.30 or 2. Um, The movement and how many. So one child sitting on a bench is generally less intense because it's not moving than a child running and dancing. So we can choose things that... Uh, minimize the intensity. Being farther away from something is generally less intense than being right up next to it. So we want to start with the least intense version. And then as the puppy tells us he's relaxed and happy, we use our barometer questions. Can you take food? Can you play? When the answer to those are yes, then we can increase the intensity. But we don't want to take our puppy because we don't have kids to the playground so we can meet, you know, six or eight kids can come over and pet them all at the same time. That would be too overwhelming. Positive, slow starts, a gradual, not a <laughs> right a tsunami. Right. I, I would say if you're learning from a book, which we really did write our book so that people could possibly learn what they needed to know about socializing a puppy, start easier than you think you need to. You know, I say this as a person who has not always known dog body language and has misinterpreted or not seen some very obvious things. And um, 
start easy, you know, start farther away than you need to start with less intensity than you think. And then you can, then you can grow on it, but uh, it's a lot better than plunging them into the deep end way better. (laughs) Yep. Cause there's the, um, you know, easing into the situation, but also making sure that we're, I think you talked about this in the book, the deposits, the positive deposits into the bank account. So when something negative does happen, cause it, it will, we can't avoid everything or everything negative, but that's less of an impact than if there it's constant negative associations. Right. 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 And that's why I don't want neutral experiences. That's why I I want those smiley puppy faces that we show in the book, what we call relaxed and happy. We co-opted that term from Joan Orr and Teresa McKeon when they were at the helm of doggone safe. Like I want to see that relaxed lower jaw. I want to see the puppy engage their ears held in the natural position. So I want them to telling me, tell me, yes, I'm enjoying this. And then I did want to touch on a, a situation where that can go poorly or exposure, not always meaning positive things. And that was the story of Eileen and the puppies in the yard. So there was two neighbors, right, that each got a puppy around the same time. Right. On one side, uh, it was a big Dane mix. And on the other side, it was um, a lab. And both of these dogs were exposed to a lot of things. They Once they got to be 12, 14 weeks old, pretty young still, uh, they they had a lot of yard time by themselves. The Dane had um, another dog with her and the lab did not. So one had a little bit of moral support and the other didn't have any at all. And neither of them had people in the yard with them, much less curating what their experiences were. So they were in yards and in, in my neighborhood, uh, everybody has chain link fences. So you can see everybody's business. <laughs> and so they were exposed to roofers and people mowing lawns and children screaming on playground equipment and mail carriers and trucks and you know they because because they could see in the front and the back everywhere else they were exposed to all these things and did they get comfortable with them no they didn't both of them stayed fairly fearful one of them stayed fearful of me I didn't feel like it was ethical for me to go throw treats without, you know, talking to the neighbors first and say, you know, does your dog have any allergies? Do you, are you okay with my, me doing this? So I would try to use extremely soft body language when I needed to go to that area of the fence, but she never got used to me. And that, I would say that that, you know, in most humans eyes, that would be a neutral experience, neighbor walking through yard. And for her, it was scary. And I didn't ever see that change. With the Dane, I I did see her get more comfortable with some things, but uh, not to the point that most of us would want to see it. And it's not that you were even, you weren't a big influence either. It's not that you were loud or moved fast. You just existed. And she was- Just existed. Yeah. Yeah. So that is, yeah, that's interesting as well to be aware that sometimes negative things don't have to happen if there's not a curated process to be able to take in the world. It can still be a scary place. I'll share my current challenge, which is that the neighbors, different, different set of neighbors, different people, they have really nice dogs and friendly dogs. And my dog Lewis is friends with them, but they put in a trampoline, a children's trampoline right next to the fence. And my dogs are petrified. They, they've never seen a human of any size bouncing like that. And even, even Lewis, who likes people, who's not scared of people in general, you know, he thinks that's about the scariest thing he's ever seen. So I have the new challenge of how far do we need to get across to the other end of the yard to where we can see movement on the trampoline and start getting him, you know, he's an adult dog now, but we need to do the basic process we've been describing here, which is pair good things with weird things happening in the environment. So that is also interesting because I hear, I get some pushback on people that are like, well, the dog's just listening to you because you have food. And it's like, well, we also have to talk about how to use the food. Because if you just had food and you weren't pairing it very carefully with just some gentle movement on the trampoline, it wouldn't do anything. And in fact, the dog could be over threshold and terrified and not wanting to take food. So it's important. And you cover this in the book too, that classical and operant conditioning as well, right? That's right. And I certainly have, have been in situations where I've, you know, the food has 
you know, my dog has been clearly over threshold and upset and she's still taking food, but it's not having the effect that we would want it to want it to. You know, it's just the situation is not under enough control and the timing isn't correct for it. As you pointed out, Elizabeth, that the timing matters. And if the owners aren't doing it correctly, then it's not going to have any effect at all. It might manage the behavior in that situation to get them out of dodge or whatever, but it's not changing how the dog feels about the things that worry him. Which is why I find it so interesting that people are kind of like blase about trick training or like, I don't need to do trick training. It's Mm -hmm. not important. You see the power of timing and trick training more than anything else and it's so fascinating and I see my clients like they get a little shocked because I'm like see that's why yes right there is so important and they're like oh that's how you get the take a bow cue or anything else it's like you approximate and capture it and then you apply the food and the dog's learning I see so many people that are just like well what is this doing I'm like they're they're learning they're figuring it out see their brains thinking and they're and they're uh, it's a it's a confusing process sometimes for people to like look and understand that learning is happening in those moments Absolutely. I think people ask me all the time, you know, what can I do to become a better dog trainer? Or if I want to be a professional dog trainer, one of the things I tell them to do is teach their dog tricks, train something you've never trained before. And I think particularly shaping behaviors comes in really handy for when you have behavior cases, because if you're used to breaking down behavior into smaller pieces, then you can be really creative when you're problem solving for a dog who is worried about your presence or worried about somebody else's presence or worried about other dogs. You know how to break that down into small enough pieces so the dog can be successful. I think that's really where the magic happens. You know how to break down a really complex, big goal into those manageable steps. That's training. I like calling it magic. I'm going to borrow that. (laughs) (laughs) I want to touch back on this question because we we discussed it at length before and I'd love to delve back into it. But Marge, what do you feel? And Eileen, you're welcome to jump in on this as, as well. But what do you feel are the differences between a dog guardian and a professional dog trainer? We kind of touched on that a little bit with like Eileen versus Marge. But, you know, someone who has a dog versus someone who's just studied and learned and written about it or or just learned a lot, maybe not written about it and like professional. Yes, that's a great question. Uh, I remember I was reading The Culture Clash and I read about an experiment that Jean Donaldson did. She was actually studying something and she was filming back when there was film uh, a dog trainer. She was filming uh, owner handler teams uh, with their dogs. And then she was uh, recording professional handlers with the same dogs. And what she noticed, she was, you know, just rewinding the film or playing backwards for those of you who don't know what film is. Uh, (laughs) And she was reversing it and she could tell while she was rewinding the film who were the professional dog trainers and who were the owner handler teams. And that was because of the rate of information they were giving to the dog. So I think if I'm going to, I probably shouldn't, I want to say the owner handler teams were giving information or feedback to the dog one time in 11 seconds. So it would be like feedback, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You get the idea. Yeah, it's so long. I know. And the professional (laughs) train, the professionals were giving feedback at a rate of one to four to six seconds. So the dogs were getting much more feedback from the professional trainers, the people who had done this for a long time. So I see that a lot in my owners as well, that, you know, they're learning a new skill. Most of my owners are learning observation and timing. They're looking at their dogs in a way that they haven't looked at them before. They're looking for tiny pieces of behavior. They might be trying to use a marker. They uh, Then they're trying to deliver reinforcement. Maybe I want it here. Maybe I want it over here. Maybe I want them to roll it. It's a new skill for them. So it takes a while for them to learn the mechanics of that. And it's like, you know, I could give them a book on tennis. They could read the chapter on how to serve an ace. They could totally intellectually understand it, 
They might even be able to visualize it in their head. But if they've never played tennis before, they'd be lucky to hit the ball the first time they throw it in the air, let alone serve an ace. The same is true for dog training. They could say, Marge, I studied Skinner in high school or college. I'm totally on board with this. I get it. I am going to use positive reinforcement. And then we start doing it and it feels awkward. Just like the first time they played tennis or even drove a car, they had to think about everything and it was very slow. So the our human learners aren't fluent in this dog training skill yet. So part of what we have to teach them is give them the skills to keep that rate of reinforcement higher, that rate of information high. Yes, it's a fluency that we're looking for. Absolutely. Pretty unique situation where you have to be teaching another creature while you're learning. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly while you're learning. You know, I tell people, I, I help people with their computers sometimes, and I'll say, wait, I need to do this first once I cannot teach it to you while I'm learning it. <laughs> but yet we have we need to do that with dogs and we just do it the best we can. And of course, Marge knows good tricks for practicing away from the dog, which can always help as well. I think it's a pretty unique situation though. Yes. Oh, that is interesting. I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by the concept of knowing things and then the practicality of implementing them too. And that mm -hmm. is something. So that's where like, Eileen, you know so much, but teaching someone else to do that with their dog is going to be a different skill set. Right, right. So different skill set. It's important for people to understand when they're going through puppy socialization or they're working with their dog that it's going to be awkward and rough at first. Yeah. We have to practice and then adjust. So if someone just has a good idea, but it doesn't work in practicality, that's okay. Maybe it works for that dog, but not for your dog. I think with the, like, also with the onslaught of information on social media, that gets a little lost sometimes. Really good point. Yes. One of the things we do in the book is suggest owners start practicing their skills with something benign, like a can of soup that we think that the puppy won't be afraid of. So they can, they're working on their timing and their treat delivery and noticing those little tiny things in the, in the comfort of their own home, hopefully a space that the puppy is comfortable in. So it gives the opportunity for them to practice those mechanical skills of observation and treat delivery and timing. Yeah, it takes a little bit of work. And <laughs> us, us professional dog trainers, we make it look real easy. I, <laughs> I always tell them, if I didn't make it look easy, you wouldn't be paying me to help you. <laughs> yeah, there's skill there. There's skill there. Well, it's a, it's a great book. You guys have put together something really cool that people can work on, you know, even if we have a pandemic, which I think is so helpful. What has been the feedback to the book? We've received wonderful, wonderful feedback. While we were going through the um, pre-publication process, Dr. Sarah Bennett from NC State, she's a veterinary behaviorist at their School of Veterinary Medicine. She reviewed the book for us and gave us wonderful reviews. And later after publication, Dr. Lisa Radasta is also a veterinary behaviorist. She loved it. The trainers have given great feedback. And the owners, most importantly, that's who yes. we wrote it for. The owners have given us such wonderful feedback. I think what is different uh, from uh, how our book is different from other books is that we include a lot of how-to videos in there. So when we're talking about a concept, whether they're in the ebook, they can just click on a link to watch a video of that process, or they're going from the paperback, we have a link to where they can, a webpage where they can view the videos, they can see what's happening with other puppy clients and see a video demonstration of the concepts that are being discussed. And we also have video examples in the body language section as well. And that's wonderful too, because people will always come up with an idea that doesn't quite match what was explained. So <laughs> having show it is very, very helpful. <laughs> I'm always Absolutely. in classes, yeah. Yep. There's, there's the challenge of technical writing and we can never quite get there. We yeah. never can't quite we can't quite paint that picture that they'll see. And we also have a section in there for what to do if you're in over your head. So 
let's say I had the best of intentions. I started small, my puppy was relaxed and happy and I increased criteria and I'm looking at his body language and all of a sudden it changed or a kid popped out of a door and I wasn't expecting that. So what to do when all of a sudden you find your puppy is a little bit overwhelmed. So I think that's important for owners as well, because as you mentioned, we can't, we can't control the world. We curate to the best of our ability, these socialization outings, but I could have picked a really quiet location. And seven minutes after I got there, a busload of children or geese arrived. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I can't, I can't plan for that. One of my favorite things in the book is the video. And we talk about it. Uh, of Marge working with one of her clients who she has taught to say no to oncoming uh, well-intended strangers who want to come pet the dog. And this, you read about it a lot everywhere, and it is so hard to go against social mores. It is so, I, I still have a hard time. I have dogs that I absolutely need to protect from people. And I mean, I can do it with my teeth gritted, but you need practice to, you need a script you need to know what to do with your body. You need to know how to protect your dog from that well-meaning person who's reaching out with their hand or sending their little child ahead with them reaching out with their hand to come see your dog when your dog's not ready for that. And I love the stuff that we have in the book that Marge has created about that. And I think it's it's one of the most very important things because I will tell you as much experience as I have, it's still hard for me. It is very hard. And people have big, strong opinions about that, too, of like, well, it's fine. Dogs love me. You know, mm -hmm. stuff. like, no, nah, you're not special. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I love that you included that because it is hard and it is another muscle that has to be worked and practiced. And I've just gotten to the point where I just run away, you know, but <laughs> I need to practice that more just like the you know, advocating and, and being able to have um, more tools is really important. There's a certain face that I make when I'm out with somebody and like, nobody asks. I don't know what the face is because I look and I smile at people sometimes, but I also try to look like I'm involved in what I'm doing. But I think a lot of times owners are so proud and so excited about their new puppy and they want sure. to show the world. And then who doesn't love a puppy? You take your puppy someplace and every, they're like, they're like people magnets. Everybody comes running up. So it's really important to give owner permission and give them the skills to say, Oh, we've had enough for today. Thank you very much. Or only if he wants to let's say you can help me train him by just standing here and talking to me for a minute without even touching him yes because some puppies are actually very excited to meet all the people and they love it mm -hmm. but that's not all puppies and so being aware of that is so important all right well Martin and Eileen I think that was all the questions I wanted to touch on was there anything else that either of you wanted to add I guess not. <laughs> Thinking, <laughs> I will say that uh, I will say for trainers and veterinary clinics and shelters and rescue groups, we do offer bulk order discounts on both the ebook and the paperback. I've had uh, breeders, rescue groups, veterinarians contact me so they can have a supply of books on hand to share with their puppy clients. Awesome. That's great. Wow. Love it. So this is really making waves. And mm -hmm. I love that you guys are, are really touching people's lives and their dogs' lives. It's it's so great. Well, congratulations. Thank oh, yeah. you. All right. And where can folks find you if they want to hear more about you, Marge, or you, Eileen? Where's the where's the best spots to look? Well, there are three places to look. There's puppysocialization.com is where we want to direct people about the book and there's information about us as well. Um, I also have a website, eileenanddogs.com. That's where my blog lives and there is definitely pop puppy content on there. There's more stuff about me personally. And Marge's business name is rewardedbehaviorcontinues.com. Perfect. Now, Marge, you're not really on Instagram. I well, I know I'm there, but I'm trying to work that muscle so I can get more fluence in that behavior. Perfect. 
I'll make sure you both are tagged and everything. And so I'm going to go ahead and do the sign off. This has been Telltale Dog, the podcast with your host, Elizabeth Silverstein, certified dog trainer in Central Arkansas, and my guests today, Marge Rogers and Eileen Anderson. Music has been provided by Jim Chiago of 7 Second Chance. Find more of his work on iTunes and Spotify. Stick around after the music for some final advice from Eileen and Marge. Before we sign off completely, what has been the biggest mistake you've you've seen a lot of dog guardians make and how would you recommend avoiding that mistake? I'll go. This is Marge. I will say the biggest mistake I've seen is twofold. It is either overdoing it, taking their puppy everywhere. And they're missing what we call the missing piece of the socialization puzzle. Is the puppy having a good time during those experiences? Are they forming positive associations? So taking the puppy everywhere isn't curating the experiences and making sure the puppy has a positive experience. The flip side of that coin is keeping your puppy home and not taking him anywhere until he's had all his vaccinations. First of all, there's so much owners can do at home. We have an entire chapter in the book dedicated to things you can and should be doing with your puppy at home to introduce novelty, handling, and all of those things. And secondly, a good professional certified trainer will be able to help you find ways to do it safely, whether that's even just getting in your car and driving and looking at things. But what we've learned you can't do is not give your puppy any socialization experiences. Eileen, did you have anything to add? Sure. Marge is very thorough and she covers so much there, but I'll add a little nuance. And this has to do with giving your puppy the right experience at the right time. And that is Don't assume that your puppy yesterday is the same as your puppy today. And don't assume that it's a linear process, that if you did three things, uh, you know, you rolled the dial to three yesterday, you can roll it to four today. That may not work. Um, Your puppy's different today. They're different every day. And of course, the answer to this is knowing your puppy and observing your puppy. And we have a whole chapter and not just the chapter, but it permeates the book how to observe your puppy, how to learn about dog body language. So you won't make that mistake of dialing up to six when your puppy's at, you know, two is pretty scary today. That's, it's not a linear process.